Welcome. Good morning. Um, don't you love the summer? I mean, gosh, the, the clouds, the sun, all of that stuff, the weather. I saw a post uh, that someone said, I will take um, 100 degrees over complaining about the cold. And I was like, oh, I wouldn't go that far. 100, deg 100 degrees. Like, I mean, 100 degrees in the summer is awful. Like, in, in Oklahoma right now, they're experiencing that kind of weather. And so they're dealing with 100 degrees, like Texas and all that, that area right now. And, and I love the summer, but it's because we travel, right? That's why we love the summers. We get to travel, get to experience these places. And so this, this passport to the Mediterranean, doesn't it just make you want to travel? Like, doesn't it just make you want to travel? We're talking about cities we're going to, and it just makes me want to go to those cities. Um, just recently, last month, we had an opportunity to take a trip to Honduras. We took a mission team, about 20 of us, went to Honduras, spent eight days in Honduras. We jumped on a plane early Saturday morning, I traveled all day, 3,000 miles. We, we went 3,000 miles where we fell in love, we encouraged, we just poured into the people of Honduras. And I loved it. We worshiped together. We played games. We, we uh, played soccer together. We learned about the, the food and the culture. We were able to meet community leaders and learn about their community and know who they are and what they do. We, we walked through their community, which means we walked through their farms of pineapples, and, and they had a group of them ate pineapples at the top of this hill. And, and we had so many opportunities. We, we helped a camp. We, uh, so Heart to Honduras is the organization that we went with, and they have a campground, so we were able to help put together an obstacle course and clean up their campground so they can pour into the youth that, in that area. And so we did so much. We did so, so much. But after eight days, it also felt like we didn't do anything. Felt like, oh, man, we could have been here for longer. We were tired. Um, we were, um, you know, we missed home. I'm sure if you have, a, if one of your family members went, you've got text messages or notes saying they missed you. Like, we missed home. We missed uh, America. But we also just felt just, just good to be there. Like, something, uh, something just, like, inside of us. Like, when we left, it was very clear, the group, I don't know if you were here the Sunday after we got back, but it was very clear that group did not want to leave Honduras. Like, we were talking about it still. We wanted to go back. Like, it made a huge impact on our lives. We, for us, it changed us a little bit. Well, I want to speak for myself. I don't want to speak for the whole group, but, like, I got to experience God in a brand new way and learn about who he was. And, and what's really cool about that is in the process of, of a mission trip, is you share about God, you share about how incredible he is and all the things he could do, but what's really cool is in the process of a mission trip, you learn about God and you get shared, you get, you get to know God through the people and the community, and you get to hear about God, and you get to experience God, and at the same time, you're telling them about God. And so, like, it was special. There's something special about it. Something special about a mission trip, something special about getting out of your comfort zone, something special about stepping out of things that you're used to, traveling and going someplace, speaking to God. Um, there's something special about relying on the Holy Spirit to show up in ways you're not expecting. And that's what, that's what I love about this series we're in, right? We're in this series called Passport to the Mediterranean. And what we're hearing, whether you understand this or not, you're hearing mission trips. You're hearing mission trips of the first century. You see, God has said, I want to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ across the world, and he's using people to go into these cities and to spread the gospel, these mission trips, right? And we've been to Rome, you know, we've been to Corinth already, Galatia, we've been to Ephesus already, and during the first century, this is where we're at right now. God didn't send those at the time in the first century to Honduras. He's kind of kept it specifically in the Mediterranean Sea. And so in the Mediterranean Sea, I don't know if you know this, but the Mediterranean Sea is, is big. It's actually as big as the United States. 
Like it stretches from coast to coast of the United States. It's kind of weird to process that and to think about where the, in the world a sea is that big. But just, just imagine for a second a, a cross-country trip like this. <laughs> right? And so the church, the early church, Jesus has now called them, his last words to the disciples is to go and make disciples of all nations, right? And he's telling them, go to the world that you know of, the world that you are experiencing. Go to the sea. And so, um, I don't know if you know this, but as, during as I was learning about the early church and learning about this time, um, but this is the context that they are in. And actually, being realistic, they actually only have half the context because they don't really know what's beyond um, the, like the, the West here. They, they kind of know of Spain. Paul wanted to go to Spain, like we all do. But they know that like, he doesn't know there exactly what it looks like. Or he doesn't know exactly, but they know, okay, we're going to stay in, at least in the, in the east side of the Mediterranean Sea where Jerusalem is, where Greece is, where Italy is, where Rome is, all this stuff. And we learn a little bit more about the world in 1660 B.C., by this historian, geographer, philosopher named Strabo. And this historian, basically what his job is, he lives during the time of the Roman Empire, the kind of the transition, and what he's doing is he's traveling and documenting what's going on in the world. He's getting to know people, he's learning, he's understanding the culture, and he's understanding what's going on, and he's getting this idea of the world and what it looks like, right? And so what happened is this philosopher would travel, and what he would do is he would mark where he's going and how it's going, and he would take maps and put them together, and he actually created a map about this time of the world that they know of. And it's, it's pretty crazy. And so this is the world that they would know of at the time. And so think about, obviously, we have a globe. We know what the world is. But this is, to them, their context. This is the world. There's three continents, Africa, Europe, and Libya. And so they know a little bit about the West through India and the trade route. They know that. They know a little, or the East, the East of India. They know a little bit about the West. But this is their context. This is, the, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about passports in the Mediterranean in the first century, the early church, the spreading of the gospel. This is the world. And it's really cool. I love this. When I saw this, I, I put it, it, put me, it put me in the position of like, okay, this is the world I'm talking about now. This is the world that we're in. When we talk about the church, when we talk about the spreading the gospel in the first century, this is it. And what's really cool is that cities like Greece, we're going to spend a little time in, this, in, in the country of Greece, they would welcome philosophers like Strabo. They would welcome people and teachers, and they would want to learn from them. And so you would have this man who's walking to your city and basically sit there, whether it's your synagogue or it's a square, and basically teach them. And these guys would be, these teachers would be masters in rhetoric, masters in persuasion, and what they would do is they would teach them about something, whether it's something that, um, about the world, about the rest of the world, teach them about the gods, whether they're the Greek gods like Zeus, or they would teach them something that they have not heard before. But typically what would happen is at the end of their talk, at the end of their teaching, they would persuade them to pay them. And so they asked for money. And so think about that for a second. Someone would walk into your city, talk about you, teach you, and say, give me your money now. And you would do it. You would do it because you just got, you learned something incredible or you got reinforced something that you already knew. And so you just learned something about the world that you didn't know before. And so there's this whole world going on right now where they're learning from people traveling across the world, right? And so what was crazy about this moment in the first century is they loved their gods, right? They loved Zeus, they loved Poseidon, they loved Hades. This was the culture that they were in. And if you were to try to tell them something different, try to give them some, some other information, they would obviously be against it, right? Whether it was about um, the afterlife. Right? They would talk about the afterlife, what would happen when you die, right? They, the Greek people, the Greek times, they would already have an understanding of the afterlife. 
they would already understand what afterlife looked like. They knew that if one person died, their soul would depart, and they would go down to that realm of Hades, where they would spend eternity with Hades. And if you were virtuous living, if you had a good life, you would, you would somehow be in the higher realm of Hades, but if you were a normal, average Joe, you would be in basically dark shadow realm for eternity. And so they knew that. That was their, that was like, that's, don't tell me anything else about what happens after I die. And so, what does Christ tell his disciples to do? Go to these people, tell them what happens after they die. Go and tell them a life different than the life they have. Go tell them about this man, Jesus Christ, who, who was born, died, and was resurrected from the dead. Think about that for a second. The culture does not understand that, and Jesus is now telling the disciples, go and do that. Teach them about me, teach them about a different God, teach them about everything opposite that they're learning. Go and do that. So this is the context. This is the context. And today we are traveling to first century Thessalonica. And I love Thessalonica. I've been living in Thessalonica, I guess, for the last couple of weeks, learning about it, reading the books, trying to learn the history of this, of this city. And what's really cool is this city's um, important, um, obviously, it's significant, but it's important because of where it's located. It's located right on the water. It's right in between two intersections of the Roman road. And so there's a lot of trading going on. There's a lot of um, commerce happening. It's a very wealthy city. And so if you are there, you have money or you know people who have money and your family has money about. And so like this is, you're, you're knowledgeable because people want to come to the city. So the people who would teach, they would travel to this. Philosophers would travel to Thessalonica. And so it was beautiful. It was a place of 200,000 people at the time. And it was the second largest city in Greece besides Athens. Athens is the largest and so it was this beautiful place. And what's crazy is today, we don't have a lot left over. We have some of the ruins. Like we have the, like the main like speaking synagogue area. We have a little bit of a church still left. Um, but the, the modern city of Thessaloniki, which was renamed to Thessaloniki, actually is, is now a tourist place. And it's beautiful. And I'm going to show some pictures on the screen. It is a place where it is happening. It is there's a cultural epicenter of, of that area. It is a place where um, there's, 300, there's 320,000 people live in the area, in that city alone. But like a surrounding area is about a million people. And so it is, um, there's places to do, there's things to do. Like if you went to Google right now, traveling to Greece, where would I go? Thessaloniki would pull up on your list of where to go. And it's a beautiful place, obviously. There's, there's more to it. There's statues. There's, there's life. There's markets. And so what I love about this is that we kind of see this weird, like, like, juxtaposition, this dynamic of, like, the old church, and what is a, what is a, how does a church establish in, the, in a building like this? And then how does it thrive now, right? So church back then in the first century obviously would, 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 would attract people, but it would attract people for a different reason. And now we have a city like Thessaloniki that's attracting people, but for a little bit more entertainment, right? A little bit for selfish reasons. So what about the church then, right? What about the church? We're in Thessalonica. What about the church here as well? Like most of the churches in this area, in this time, uh, it begins with Paul. Paul's in the middle of his uh, missionary journeys. We're actually in the, his second missionary journey. And he's traveling, and he's traveling to all of these areas. He has a vision from God. He wants to go and spread the gospel, right? And he wants, wants to go. His second missionary journey is through uh, Macedonia, so the area that's north of the Mediterranean Sea. And he's bringing his companions, Paul and, his, and uh, Silas. And they just left Philippi. So, the, so we're going to talk about Philippi uh, in a few weeks. So we're going to get to know that city a little bit. But 
So they're traveling through Macedonia, and this is where we pick up, Acts chapter 17, verses 17, verses 1 through uh, 4. And this is the story. So when Paul and his companions had passed through Amistelai and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So this is the pattern in Paul's ministry. So this is what he does. He begins by preaching in the synagogue, which results in Jews and Gentiles listening and paying attention and coming to faith in Jesus, right? And he does this here in Thessalonica in a place that's wealthy, in a place that knows a lot already, or in a place that's very, very set in their ways, in their very Greek culture ways. And what happens here is a mob of Jewish people hear this, and they don't like it. They don't like it. They actually say that Paul and Silas, they know of Paul and Silas, because they say they've caused trouble all around the world. And they said they have turned the world upside down. Again, the small world they have around the Mediterranean. But Paul and Silas are known already. As they walk in the synagogue, they are already known who they are. And they say they're going against the emperor. They're going against the king. They're saying Jesus is the true king. They're saying that in order to live, you must die. They're saying that you need to put your faith in this Messiah, that you will have eternal life with the God after you're dead. And so we're hearing all this. And so basically a mob comes and kicks them out of the town. And so Paul and Silas leaves. They go to Baru which is about 45 minutes away. They do the exact same thing, teach in the synagogue. Many people believe. And then, what's crazy about this moment, is that the people in Thessalonica hear about them teaching in Baru 45 minutes away. They come to the new city and do the exact same thing. So it's weird, like, Paul and Silas cannot catch a break. But they leave, eventually they set sail, they get on the boat, and they, 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 they sail off to Athens. And so when we hear about the church in Thessalonica, we are reading their story, obviously from here in Acts chapter 17, but then we're also hearing um, about Paul and the time he spent with them. And so I want you to get this. So Paul goes to this town of Thessalonica. He spends three weeks with them. Spends three weeks with them, which I know that kind of sounds like a lot, right? But when you put it in comparison to the other cities that he spends with them, he spends with the city, put it in perspective. He doesn't go to Rome because he's in house arrest at this point, but he spends a year and a half with Corinth. He spends multiple years in Galatia, he spends about two years and three months in Ephesus, and he spends three weeks with the church in Thessalonica. Not a lot of time. Not a lot of time. Three weeks is to plant a church, <laughs> to teach them about God, and to leave them. Three weeks is not a lot of time. For me, I was, a church, I was part of a church plant in Oklahoma, and if you were to tell us we only had three weeks to establish a church in a community and to let them leave after, and leave after those three weeks, it would have been impossible. It's impossible. I, I, I mean, the idea, and you guys understand this, the idea that you would be able to understand everything about God in three weeks would be impossible, right? Paul does it. He says it. He, says, he, does it, he preaches on the Sabbath. Every three, three Sabbaths pass by, so three weeks. Incredible moment happens here. Catch that. Three weeks, and a church is formed, which means Paul's great, right? We know Paul. But we, there's something else going on here, right? The Holy Spirit has moved in and absolutely made an impact on this church, has done something incredible. And so when Paul gets to Corinth, when he finally sells away, 
he writes to uh, the church of Thessalonica because he's concerned, right? I mean, think about that. Three weeks with the church, you don't know what's going on, you leave. So what he does, he sends his, his, his partner, Timothy, and Timothy goes and basically gets to know the church, and then he reports back to him. And so what we read is Paul's letter to Thessalonica, and what I love about this, I want you guys to catch this, we're going to read a lot about the, the church here, is this church is a great church. I just want to get you this kind of spoiler alert there. It's a beautiful church. There's a lot of good stuff happening, and we can learn a lot. And Paul, I want you to hopefully hear some of the excitement in Paul's voice as I read this. So this is Paul writing back to that church. He's only spent three weeks, and he says this. To the church in Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank you for all you and they continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So just three weeks he has said all this. He's gotten to know them. He's got heard, he heard back from Timothy kind of the report of what's going on. And what's crazy about this, this is a church, get this, this is a church that started out in persecution, right? They persecuted Paul. They started out with this like issues already pushing someone out of the church. And he says, I always thank God for you, obviously. I thank God for you all the time. But I also remember the work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. This is Paul's kind of three things he always talks about. He always talks about faith, love, and hope, right? He talks, he talks about it multiple times in the churches. But I want to catch that. I, I, want, I just want to repeat that because I want you guys, for us as a church, to understand the three qualities that this church has, right? And not only the qualities that they have, we all can have faith, love, and hope, but catch this, what they produce is so important. You see, what they produce is what he's paying attention to. What, what, what it produces is what Paul wants to highlight here. And so the first thing he says is you have faith that produces work. He says, you're a church, you've been saved, you know Jesus Christ, you know everything about him, so what about your faith? What does it do? And he says, well, your faith, your faith what it does is it produces work, right? Your faith is put into action. He wants this to be a quality of a church. He wants it to be a quality of us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not for, from yourself, it is from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, but we are God's handiwork, right? We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So what did this church do? What was the work that they do? They created disciples. They created disciples. They wanted other people to experience who God was. And they taught them. They lived out their faith so much in just the time, the months that's passed, that they have created multiple disciples. They went from a church, they don't, we don't know the exact number of how many people were there watching Paul for those three weeks, but it grew, and it grew, and it grew because of the work and the faith that they had. But they didn't stop there. The next part is their love produces labor, right? A church, Christians, are known for their love. And so Paul writes, and he tells us this, he says, these three things will last forever, right? Faith, love, and hope, the greatest of this is love. And so this church worked hard for each other. You see, normally, Greek culture, what they would do is um, work wasn't really a priority. If you were um, rich or if you were, you know, um, had a lot, you wouldn't work. You just wouldn't do anything. So the people who were poor or the people who um, were average almost would have to work. And so the whole goal in the Greek culture was to not work was to not do anything, right? And so here are these Christians, this church forming, 
doing things are starting to work. They're starting to have, they're starting to do things. They're starting to build. They're starting to put together. They're starting to just do whatever they can for each other, right? And so they're flipping the world upside down. They're flipping the world upside down. And so Jesus says in John chapter 15, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for our friends. Complete opposite from what the Greek culture, what they're used to. Complete opposite. And then the last one, right? The last one is their hope produced endurance. Paul made sure to mention this because this church needed a reminder. Right? They just got done surviving this weird, hard time of losing this person who planted this church. But he's reminding them it's not about just surviving hard times. It's not about just, okay, I've gone through it, I've gone through it, I'm done with it. But he's saying, I want this church, I want the church to come out stronger than before. I want what you are going through to change you and to make you better. And he's saying what's happening in this church is that the hope that they have in the future, they hope, has created this in them. I love what uh, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. It says, therefore, let us not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. So they're focused on perseverance, patience, endurance, but it comes from their hope and what's going to happen. And so they have their faith, right? They have their hope. They have their love. This church gets it. It's a beautiful church. And here's what's amazing. I don't want to get this because so many times um, we may read through a book or a letter of Paul or a letter in Scripture, and we read and we, we don't catch everything that's happening that's going on. We may miss out on the three things of this church. Instead, we focus maybe on the negative things sometimes, which we do that a lot, especially when we're talking about Paul's letters in the cities. We, th- we start to think about, okay, all the things that they did wrong, right? All the things that Paul's correcting them on. So I want to make sure that we focused on the incredible three things that this church is doing, but that also means they're doing something that they're not supposed to. But before they do that, before they get to that point of like the messing it up, there have been examples. They are an example to the churches around them. They are an example to those who are in their city and outside their city. I want you to re- just read this with me. This is, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. And this, is, this is, goes on. It says, But now Timothy has just returned bringing us good news about your faith and love, and he reports that you will always remember our visit with joy and that you want, to see as much as we want, we, you want to see us as much as we want to see you. So we've been greatly encouraged in the midst of our troubles and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, because you have remained strong in your faith, and it gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. And it goes on. It says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love, and, love each other. And in fact... You do love all of God's family through Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do more and more to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. So if you should mind your own business, work it with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody else. And he goes on, he says, you're still an example. He says, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more and the love of you have for one another is increasing Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all persecutions and trials that you are enduring. The church in Thessalonica is an example. It's a beautiful example. Beautiful example to their neighbors, 
and to everyone around them. And what's really cool is that Paul is explaining this to them. He's also telling, he's telling them, hey, I've also told them about you. I've told other churches. I've used your church as an example as I go to the next town, as I go to the next town. I have shared what is going on in Thessalonica. And I love that so much. And as much as right there, we could stop there and be done. We could say, this is the three qualities that this church has and their examples. And I, I think we can be encouraged by that. But we also need to understand, okay, what else is going on, right? It's not always rainbows, right? There's something going on that maybe we need to pay attention to, right? There's something that we may be missing and they may be missing. And so one of the things that we see is obviously they're not perfect. And so one of the things that as you read about this church, as you read about their faith, hope, and love, they also are starting to get people in their building and people in their city that are misleading them. And so what would happen is that Paul has now spent months away, and so Paul has gone from them, and so there's these people that have stepped in and have pretended to be Paul at some times, whether they've written letters and said, hey, I'm Paul, or there's been false teachers stand up and say, uh, what Paul has taught you is wrong, here's now the new thing that we should learn. And so they have people that are misleading them, teaching them other things that they shouldn't be learning. And they're starting to get certain truths confused. Again, Paul only spent three weeks with them, right? And so it's going to be very easy for them to get confused on certain things. Especially, and here's what happens, they have key people die. And so in the community, in this church, brand new church, right, they start to have these, these, these elders and, these, and children die. And so they're confused, right? Because again, they have some idea about what afterlife looks like. And then they've been told what afterlife in Jesus looks like. And so they're getting these confused, and they're, and they're starting to doubt what the future looks like, right? They're starting to say, okay, I'm confused. And here's why we're confused. Okay, one of the things he addresses in the teaching in this letter is the end times. And so they're confused about, okay, what does it look like at the end, right? What does it look like when Jesus returns? Okay, you told us three weeks that Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to return, bring us to him. But yet we are confused because now we have people dying. And so what's crazy in this moment is what the false leaders are telling them is that you have missed it. That you have missed it. Right? And they're discouraged by this. Because they have teachers telling them, you have missed the return of Christ. Christ has already been returned. You have missed it. And so we hear this letter, and we hear Paul's writing this, and he's telling them, obviously, here's the three things you're doing incredible. You're an example but let me teach you something else about the future of what God is doing in your life and in the church. And what's really cool about this moment is, is this is the first kind of full discussion of the end times. And so we know today, we know of the book of Revelation. And so we know that um, there's kind of an end to our Bibles, right? There's a, there's a last page, and we are encouraged by the last page. But the people here in this area, they don't have that book. And so they don't know this account of what does it look like, or they don't know, okay, what does it look like for Jesus? In this time right now, actually, the church and the early church in the book of Acts, they are telling people Christ is coming back like now. Like Christ is returning this week. In the next 40 days, he will be here. So get ready. And so Christ doesn't obviously return in this 40 days or in this time. And so they're a little bit like, okay, so what do we do now? How do we, what do we, what's going on? And so that's why Paul writes this, and it's the first account that we have of some sort of coming of Christ. And so Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You see, the church has been so focused on what the end days will look like, they become worried about dead, the dead. That's, which, I get it. I get it. We are so worried about the dead sometimes. And it's weird. We get weird around death. When death happens, it's just, we, it, it's hard. It's difficult. And we, we don't understand how to process it at times. Some of us, we do know how to process it at times. And some of us have lost someone just recently, and it's so difficult. Or we've lost someone a year ago, and it's so difficult. Or we lost someone from 10 years ago, and it's so difficult. Because it's something that we sometimes have a hard time understanding. It causes us to think about our own death. It causes us to think about what happens after, the, after we die. And we're told of this man who lived, died, rose from the dead, we believe in him, we're encouraged by him, and then we're told one day we will rise with him, but that doesn't help sometimes right now, right? It doesn't help. And then it doesn't help this church when they've heard false teachers tell them they've missed out on it, and they're not going to rise with God, and they're not going to share eternal life with him. And so you have a church that is now starting to get a little confused, and they're so focused now on at the end of this letter, Paul is making sure he addresses this because he doesn't want them to be fo- so focused on the end that he, they, they miss out on today. He wants, to know, he wants them to know there is a plan, right? There is a plan. There is a, there's a plan for the end. He actually writes later on about it more. He, he talks about it more about like signs that you may see, something that may happen. There's an account of what's going to happen, right? And while we may at times debate on what that looks like, um, Paul makes sure he tells them it's not happening right now but it's going to happen, and you will join with Jesus Christ. But he also reminds us, and, and I want to remind us, of, of Jesus' words when he tells us that we don't know the day or hour, that only God knows. And Paul knew this, and he saw a church that was so focused on the future, so focused on the end, and he wanted to make sure they, they, they got something different. And so for me, when I'm reading this, um, and I'm learning about this, this church, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing a church that gets it, Right? but I'm also seeing a church that's so focused on the wrong things. And for me, that breaks my heart because I love this church that I'm, that I'm reading about, right? And then I think about our church and the church of, of, of where we're at, not just here in Columbus, but the church in our world, right? Is this, we have a church that is beautiful, that knows God, that loves God, that's full of the Holy Spirit. And, I'm, and at times, I'm guilty of this. We're so focused on the wrong things. And we're so focused on things that are first beyond our control. We're so focused on things that uh, just, just distract us. And so when I read this church that gets it, that reads this church that has faith, hope, and love, you know what I see? I see our church, too. Right? I see our church full of faith, hope, and love. And we get to see things happen. We get to spend out time outside of our building, loving on our community, right? We get to do things. And there are times... I'm not, this is, this is coming from a place of, of, of my own guilt, not, 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 not from like, oh, we're so bad, but from my own guilt. And I do focus on the end at times. And what happens when I'm so focused on the end goal and I'm so focused on the result, I'm so focused on what's going what's gonna to look like, I start living for that instead of living for today. I start focusing on that instead of living for this moment right now. And I'm so, when I was preparing this, um, early on in the, in the, in the, in, as I was working through this, I had this thing stick out to me, this, this, this phrase stick out to me, and it was very clear it wasn't from me, because 
I'm not that smart to put a phrase like this together. Um, but it was a phrase that I thought, okay, Holy Spirit's working on this for me, but also to the church in Thessalonica, but also to us. And it was, what you hope for shapes what you live for. What you hope for shapes what you live for. And so if your hope is in Jesus Christ, you're going to live for Jesus Christ. Right? If your hope is, in for, is for other people, you're going to live for other people. So what are you hoping for, church? What brings you hope? And what I love about this is Paul has obviously told them about this incredible church and the example and things are getting, they're missing out, but he also shares his hope with the church. And I want you guys to catch this, and I love this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. After all, you know what gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. It's the church in Thessalonica. It's the church in Columbus. You see, I want us to be a church that travels 3,000 miles to Honduras. I want us to, I want to, tra- I want us to do that. I want us to travel 6,000 miles. I want, us to travel across, I want us to travel across the world, right? Meet every continent. I want us to, to be able to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those, but I also want us to be a church that travels half a mile to Walmart parking lot and hands out hot dogs, Right? I want it to be a church that goes beyond this building to those who walk in our parking lot each and every day. I want us to those. I want to go. I want us to be a church that goes to our neighbors and our work and our in our neighborhood. And I want us to love people the way the church in Thessalonica love people, the way the churches love people for all of time. I want us to be a church that is so full of the Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that when they see us, they see Jesus. That when Paul writes to us, he says, you are my pride and joy. You bring me hope. You bring me joy. I want us to reflect that in the way we live. And so I want to leave us with this. It's Paul's final greeting to the church. It's ours, kind of just as we've heard all this. It's kind of just a reminder of, of what Paul writes. His last thing, he says, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your, holy, may your whole spirit and your whole soul and your whole body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much. Lord, thank you so much for the church in Thessalonica. Lord, thank you so much for Paul. And so many times we read our scriptures and we talk about Paul and we read about his life and his journey, um, Sometimes we just, it's, it's background noise or it's just, oh, that's what he did and, and that's just in the history books and that's just, you know, we read about this, but Lord, I'm just reminded in this moment that it was a real church, real people who experienced real moments with you. And Lord, we are the church experiencing real moments, experiencing you. And so Lord, today I'm encouraged by a church, first century, and the examples that they've been to their time, but also the example they are to us in this moment. And so I pray for Meadow Park Church in Columbus. I pray that we are full of faith and hope and love and that it produces work and labor and endurance. And that I pray that we are so focused on who you are that we don't think about the end times and, and tribulation and all that stuff, but we're so focused on pouring into our neighbors and loving one another. We are known as the way we love one another. I pray that this church goes beyond each and every day, not just on Sundays, and serves those around us, to love on those around us. But I'm so thankful 
that you are a God of peace, you are a God of love, that you are, that you are in the process of making us holy in every way because we are not done. And so I pray that well, the things we hope for shape how we live. I just pray that our hope is in you, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>